So Jesus sent out his, his 12 disciples to preach at the beginning of chapter 9, and they returned. And, at, and then at the beginning of chapter 10, he sends out 70 others. We're not told who these are. In fact, Luke is the only writer that, that explains to us, that tells us about the 70. Uh, but they go out and they preach. They are spreading the gospel. And the gospel, as we've seen in Luke, is really a simple phrase. It's the kingdom of God. Go out and tell them the kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God implies a king and a realm. And Jesus is that king. He is God in the flesh. He has come to earth for a purpose and a mission. And it's not to rescue the Jews from Roman oppression. And what the Jews thought then is what many think today, is that somehow Jesus is here to make our lives better. He is, but not in the sense to make you rich or to give you great health and to give you everything that you think makes a person uh, blessed, that we think makes a person blessed. Jesus came to rescue our wretched souls from the prison that they are in. They're in the prison of sin. You think, well, what do you mean by that? Some people don't know what I mean by that. Others of you know exactly what it means. It means that you are held captive in bondage to you, to doing whatever you want to do. Maybe you're visiting here today and you've come to church and you thought, I'll just see what this guy says. And if he says everything I like, I'll go with it. If it's God's word and I don't like it, God knows me. I've got to deal with God. I can do what, he, what I want, and he lets me get away with what I don't want to do. No, he doesn't. It's not even close to the gospel. You are living a lie. You are completely delusioned by Satan himself. God calls us to give up everything, to surrender ourselves, to repent of our sins, to give our entire lives to him. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And Jesus has said that. He tells the, the 12, he tells everyone who reads his words that to be a disciple of Christ, to be a true follower, is not just to say, I believe in Jesus. I came to know Jesus when I was young. I walked down an altar, or to the, to the aisle, I should say, at an altar call, and, and I'm a Christian. That's not what a Christian is. Anyone can walk to the front of a church. Anyone can be taken by the mood of a song and walk to the front, raise their hand and say, I want, I want in. I want eternal life. Anyone can do that. But not everyone can say, Lord, I give you my all. My whole life is yours. No matter what you hear, no matter what you say in your word, Lord, I will follow. Our preconceived notions of what it means to be a Christian fall by the wayside when we read God's word. Uh, when the, when the uh, Babylonians took the Jewish people into captivity, uh, 530, uh, I should say 586 B.C., uh, they, went, they were expunged from the land. Some of the Jews went out and were scattered. Uh, and they hid, and they came back into the land while the rest of their fellow Jews were in Babylon, 800 or so miles away. And they came together, and there was a prophet that was left in the land by Nebuchadnezzar. His name was Jeremiah. And the Jews gathered around Jeremiah, and they loved Jeremiah. At least they said they did. And they told him, get a word from the Lord Jeremiah. We will do whatever God says to do. Whatever he says, we'll do. And they keep saying it over and over. I think it's 10 days later, word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah. Now, mind you, they're all packing their bags, and they're going to go down to Egypt because their land is desolate now. The Babylonians have decimated it. There are pockets of it that can be farmed, and they're getting their bags ready, and they're going down to Egypt. What did God say, Jeremiah? He comes and he says, here's the word of the Lord. Mind you, they've just told him over and over, we'll do whatever you say, whatever the word of the Lord says. The word of the Lord was, guess what? Don't go down to Egypt. I didn't call you to go down to Egypt. And so when he tells them, don't go down to Egypt, what do you think they said? Well, that's the word of the Lord. We'll obey whatever. No. 
They went down to Egypt. They said, we don't care what God said. We're going to Egypt. That's the way many people are today. Many people that call themselves Christians. I'll do whatever God says. Wait a minute. I didn't know that was in there. I didn't know that the Bible taught election. I thought that was John Calvin. I thought he was a, a, a cultist. Some of you have been told, don't go to Harvest Bible Church. They're Calvinists. Run from it. My advice, run from them. Run from anyone who tells you to run from Calvinistic doctrine. They're heretics. They are essentially saying, we know it's in the Bible. We don't like it, and we are not following it. Run from them. Jesus doesn't make any negotiations. Jesus gives the gospel to his people. Go out and spread it. If they believe, fantastic. If they don't, he tells them, shake the dust off your feet from that town and leave. No middle ground, is there? No middle ground with Jesus. As I've told you, my wife is the same way. There's no middle ground with her. I either love her completely or it's over. Can you believe her? We understand that. You're a, you're a supervisor at work. Your subordinate does this. You say, look, this is the deal. This is what you do. Your office hours are these. Here's what's expected of you. Can he or she do whatever they want? No, not without losing their job. So we understand this concept. God is saying, this is my world. I made it. Here it is. And so the 70 go out and they preach. And as we looked at last week, bear with me. I just recovered again in verse 17, chapter 10, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy. They had preached the gospel, and along the way as they preached it, they observed that the demons were all around them, apparently uh, within people, within the people that they were speaking to. And the demons were fleeing from the people everywhere they went. And they returned to Jesus, and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Had to be in your name. And none of them went out. As I said last week, don't think that any of these people went out and found demon-possessed people so they could say, demons out. They simply did what Jesus said and preached the gospel. And when you preach the gospel, there's a disturbance in the force. Isn't there? There's a disturbance in the demonic world when the gospel is preached. Oh, that more people would preach the gospel and shake that world. Any of you ever read, uh, I know it's a bit of a Christian comic book, but it's uh, This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Back in the 80s, right? This Present Darkness. I was reading that one time, and a guy came up, and he said, I can see that you're a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ. I said, yes, sir. He said, put away the comic books, boy. What? This is a good book. But the point of the book is that, that there's praying going on in the, in the house of God. And then he takes the scene to the demonic world and talks about how it shakes up the, demon, the demons, or the demons, whatever. Shakes them up. It shakes their world. And that's what Jesus is saying. While you were out preaching... Those demons were subject to you in, your name, in my name, Jesus said. In verse 18, Jesus said, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. While you were preaching, I was watching. And I was watching that old serpent, the devil, fall like lightning. With every giving of the gospel, with everyone who believed, I was watching him fall. It was a great show, Jesus is saying, from my seat while they went out preaching. And he tells them in verse 19, behold... As if to say, this is not a big deal. This is nothing that should, should surprise you. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, this is not to be taken literally. You are not to go out today and say, I'm a believer in Christ. Give me a snake and let me show you my power. Jesus is talking, spiritually speaking, because he says, I've given you authority. What did they just talk about? The authority to cast out demons. Jesus is saying, I gave you authority to cast, to tread on serpents and scorpions, which is to say, devils and demons. 
and over all the power of the enemy. And who's the enemy? The enemy is Satan himself. We don't handle a snake, smash its head off and say, we, break, we, we killed Satan today. That's just a snake. It's just a scorpion. There are some people out there today that are handling snakes and scorpions, trying to test their faith. Don't do that. That's not what Jesus means at all. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. Prayer, the Word of God, faith. And this is what they showed. And Jesus said, I've given you authority. And what he gave them, he's given to us. Our authority with the gospel shakes the demonic world over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. That is to injure you not physically. People die all the time as Christians. The injuries, you will never be injured spiritually. You are mine, Jesus is saying. I own the essence of you. In fact, death should never frighten a believer in Christ because we are ushered out of this world of death into eternal life. We go forward without any care. We've already died to ourselves. So what if we die in the mission field? Nothing will injure our souls, what Jesus has taken possession of. Nevertheless, Jesus says in verse 20, do not rejoice in this. Don't rejoice that demons are, are uh, being cast out at you preaching the gospel. Rejoice in this, that your names are recorded in heaven. Isn't that our great joy? There are lots of things to be happy about and to praise God for, but that's the one thing, the one thing. Maybe you miss, maybe you don't say enough, Lord, I'm a child of God. You took me. You thought of me on the cross. He had to have. We're his. We're his children. You know how you feel about your own children? We have this deep affection for our own children, and our love is very impure. It's not quite so good. And yet, our God, well, so much more above that. He would have thought of us. He would have known us. Rejoice. That God knows you. That he recorded your name in heaven. That when the roll is called up yonder. Don't worry, we're not going to sing it, I promise. That when the roll is called up yonder, your name's on it. How do I know, Lance, that my name is on it? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that it's written there. And it's not written the moment you believe. God's not up there on every Sunday writing them down. Okay, I got this many converts here. God wrote that book before the foundation of the world. Does that blow your mind? I'm sorry, folks. Ephesians 1 says it. I didn't make it up. Before the foundation of the world, God chose and predestined those who were His. That role is in heaven. Rejoice in that. When everything else fails, rejoice in that. At that very time, verse 21, He rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. This is the first time and only time in all of the New Testament that Jesus rejoices. Isn't that strange? Isaiah chapter 53 speaks of the coming Messiah 700 years before his, his arrival. And it speaks of the coming Messiah as a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. You and I, if you are hip to what's going on in the world today, we walk around in a world on a planet where there are horrible things happening all around us. Things we see, we see things in the news, we see things with our own eyes. We read about stories of people, people are so angry. People are taking guns to, to Kroger and shooting someone. They just shoot them. It's happening all the time. People just shoot. They're, they're angry. If you're angry, don't bring your gun with you. It's not a good plan. These are just the things we see. We see twisted 
ideas and ideologies. We see things our government is pushing. We're not real joyful. If you look around, if you watch the news enough. And these are just things we see. We don't know what's going on on the dark web other than it's horrible. We can't see all the human trafficking that's out there. And you think, Lord, you can see it all. What little we see upsets us. We walk around in a world, we, we understand what it would be. What it would be like to be a man of sorrow. Now take, your, take the fact that God became man, who knows everything. All the things that we're blind to, He sees. He comes to this earth, and He walks this earth. No wonder He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus was not the party guy. There's one particular version of the Gospels where Jesus is this laughing guy. That wasn't Jesus. Doesn't mean he didn't laugh. But he's not the type that took his disciples in a headlock and gave them a noogie and pinned them down. Laughed. He was a man of sorrows. He saw and felt everything. And yet here he is rejoicing. He wept over the, the tomb of Lazarus, not because Lazarus was dead, but because of the human condition. He knew he was going to bring Lazarus back to life. He wept over Jerusalem for their unbelief. He wept in the garden. He, was, he told the disciples, he said, I, am, I, am, uh, I feel grief to the point of death. I am grieved to the point of death. Hebrews 5, 7 speaks of him offering up prayers and supplications with tears and loud moans and wails. That's who our Lord was on the earth. And yet in this moment, as the 70 return with their stories of great power, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to rejoice greatly in the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third member of the Trinity. God is one. There is only one God. There are not three gods. There are not a multiplicity of gods. There is one God. There can only logically be one God. The definition of God is the almighty God. The almighty one. If there were two, then that would mean there's a necessity for two. That one isn't enough, that there needs to be two. That's illogical. God, by definition, is everything. And has no needs. He is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The great Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4. Yet the one God exists eternally in three distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In nature, they are one. In their personalities and roles, they are different. One God existing eternally in three distinct persons. When the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, rejoices greatly in the third member of the Trinity, we're rejoicing in something that's very powerful. And in the context, there are people that have come back and they have believed the Word of God. The Word of God from the Old Testament was God is sending His kingdom. That's why the Jews were expecting uh, a Messiah, a king. They were expecting that. So the expectation from the Old Testament, that is from the Word of God, was that the Messiah was coming. The disciples went out and the 70 went out and said, he's here. He was preceded by John the Baptist, that voice of one crying in the wilderness that Isaiah the prophet in chapter 40 predicted. We know this is the one. He's the one. So when they say 
that when they're giving the word of God, the kingdom of God is upon you, the kingdom of God is coming, people are believing it, and demons are being cast out, this is what Jesus rejoices in. He rejoices in the Holy Spirit. That is, rejoices in what the Holy Spirit says is come to, tr- come to pass. What do I mean when I say the Holy Spirit comes to say? Folks, the Bible that you hold in your hand was written by the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's just proof text that. I'm going to go over to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Just to prove it, just so you'll know. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter. It's towards the end of your New Testament. You want to start back in Revelation and go to the left. You'll go Revelation, Jude, one page. 3 John, one page. 2 John, one page. Uh, 1 John, five chapters, which is really to say two pages. And then you'll find 2 Peter. And now we're in, we're in 2 Peter. Chapter 1. Of course, I'm looking at it, and I'm in 1 Peter. That's why it wasn't saying what I thought it should say. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 20. Peter, the right-hand man of Jesus Christ himself, says this, But know this, first of all, or of foremost importance, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, what, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. What we have in our Bible is what those men wrote down based on what the Holy Spirit led them to write. If you're in First, Second Peter, just flip over a little bit to the left and you'll get to Hebrews. You'll pass the book of James. And just go to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. And let me just show you again. So what I'm trying to show you is the Holy Spirit is the writer of the Bible. So when we say the Holy Spirit leads us, it means we've read the Bible and we've been led by the Spirit. It's not that we felt a feeling and we go out and tell people the Holy Spirit moved me to tell you this or do this, unless Scripture says it, it may not be the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. The writer says this, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95. So who is the Holy Spirit but the writer of Psalm 95? The Spirit of God, right here in the book that you hold, or that you have an app for, whatever it may be, this is what the Holy Spirit wrote. And what the Holy Spirit wrote from the Old Testament was that there's going to come a Messiah, and the kingdom of God is coming, and the kingdom of God did come, and the 70 went out and preached it, and this is what Jesus rejoices in. At that time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. Now, this matters because you and I could be depressed about a lot of things, based a lot of things I mentioned earlier. A lot of horrible things going on in this world. People hate each other. There's rumors of war. There's rumors of economic collapse. Uh, The church has gone kaput. The preachers of our world preach heresy, and the people love it so. But the one thing in the midst of it all that matters is God's Word. And this is in the midst of this, Jesus rejoices greatly in the Holy Spirit. So if if the Son of God has reason to rejoice greatly in the Holy Spirit, don't we? And he said, I praise you, O Father, of heaven and earth. Stop there. There's the first member of the Trinity. We've seen the second in the Son of God, the third member in the Holy Spirit, and the first member. 
the second member of the Trinity, Son of God, is praying and praising the first member of the Trinity. Oh, Father. Notice what he calls him. Lord of heaven and earth. Folks, this is so vital to your understanding of God's word. To your understanding of God. He, God Almighty, is the Lord. If you're Lord, you're over everything. No one is over you. You're the Lord. What is he Lord over? Heaven and earth. Heaven in the Bible and in our own common sense includes first and foremost our own atmosphere, the sky. It also includes what is above the sky. That would be space, where stars, the sun sits. It's called the second heaven in the Bible. And then there's a third heaven, and that's the place where God dwells. It's this place that the Apostle Paul ascended to. He speaks of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I ascended to the third heaven. He said, and I saw things that I could not describe and was forbidden by God to describe. Which always bothers me because people today have visions of heaven and they write books about it. They make movies about it. Odd because the Apostle Paul was forbidden to do so. Don't read those books and don't watch those movies. You're wasting your time and money. They didn't see anything. Do you need to know that someone saw heaven to believe in heaven? If God tells us there's a heaven, he's Lord of it, then by golly, there's a heaven. Jesus rejoices in the Holy Spirit, praising his Father as Lord of heaven and earth. Not just the heavens, but the earth. If God is Lord of the heavens and the earth, what are we doing trying to save this place? Do we really think that we have some kind of control over the earth? It's as if we're saying, Lord, God, you know people don't believe that he's Lord of heaven and earth. We're going to take this over now because, you know, the temperature's gone up like a whole degree. And we're afraid that over the next hundred million years, it might go up five degrees. Oh, we're so righteous, aren't we? Thinking of generations that will never exist. No, God is Father of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth, I should say. And Jesus praises him. You would think that Jesus' prayer would be, Oh Lord, I'm so sad that everyone's not believing. Will you please change their minds and let everyone believe? He doesn't. He says, Oh Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I praise you that you have hidden these things. Hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. These things is a bit vague, but in the context, it's about the kingdom of God. It's at the gospel. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what the 70 have come back to report. They went out to speak the gospel. They've come back to tell people, tell Jesus, I should say, what happened. And although they only, at least we only get Luke's version here where they talk about the people that, that responded, there's also many that rejected. And so Jesus says, I praise you, Lord. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. You've hidden the gospel. You've hidden the fact, Jesus would be speaking in the first person, that I am the Messiah. You've hidden the fact that I am divine. You've hidden the fact that they need to repent and believe on me. You've hidden it. But who's he hiding it from? The wise and intelligent. How many of you think you're wise and intelligent? I have been blessed by God to, I have three postgraduate degrees. I would fall into a category of people, people would say, oh, he's smart. I'm not smart. I'm really not. It's not 
What's the word? False humility, I promise. I've seen smart people. I'm not one of them. I do, however, work hard. I memorize a lot. I know what I'm supposed to know, but I'm not smart. I know smart people. But I would fall into the category, as the world defines it, as wise and intelligent. And I know Jesus. Many of you would, too. You've been to college, or you didn't need to go to college. You were so smart. You have postgraduate degrees, maybe. You made millions of dollars and didn't need to go to college. You are coherent. You can think logically. What does Jesus mean when he says this? Who are the wise and intelligent? Doesn't Jesus want us to be wise? Hidden it from the wise and intelligent, but made it available to infants. An infant, as you know, is a, um, he's not necessarily speaking that all the babies in the nursery understand Christ, but a baby is completely dependent. When you tell your children about, if you were to tell them that there's a monster under the bed, they're going to believe you. They believe anything. If you tell them certain things, they'll believe you. At a certain point, however, they grow up and they go, huh, mom and dad might not have been telling me the truth about the, the Sandman from heaven or something or from you know, the Tooth Fairy. I don't want to, I got to be careful. I won't go too far. I don't want to bring up the really bad one, but uh, uh, <laughs> there's still third graders in here. Mom, what did they say? But infants believe anything. They're dependent. I was talking to a, a woman just recently. And I told her, I said, it's got to be careful when you go out with me. When you, not that I went on a date with her. We went to dinner with our families. And, and uh, she had mentioned she's reading the Bible. And she said for the first time, and she said, I came across a donkey that talks. <laughs> and I, I waited at first for her to say, really, Lance, seriously? But she didn't. I came across a donkey that talked. I've never read that before, she said. Yeah, that's Balaam. Balaam's donkey, a talking donkey, Numbers chapter 22. The miracle, though, is not that the donkey talked. It's that Balaam talked back to him like it was no big deal. That's the silliness. It was her attitude. It was not, come on, you want us to read the Bible, and I'm going to read this ridiculousness? Her mind was, this is the word of God, and a donkey just talked to a man. Here's the crux of it. The man was an idiot. A fool working against God. And so God used this dumb donkey, to be very careful, dumb donkey, to speak to the mad prophet. And so he did. That's the judgment. Think about it. What's the one thing that keeps a donkey from talking? Can a donkey think? Can a donkey think? You can say yes. A donkey can think. A donkey has, it decides when it's hungry, when, it's, when it wants to go, when it doesn't want to go. It's known as a stubborn animal. I am on really thin ice. I'm being very, very careful. The only thing that stops a donkey from talking is a voice box. The only thing that allows us to talk is a voice box. Can God, if he so chooses, remove our ability to talk? And he has. Many people have been rendered mute. So if God can take away someone's ability to talk, can the Lord of heaven and earth make some a donkey talk? How about the serpent in the garden? You see, it's no big deal when you understand Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The greatest miracle that ever happened. God 
is existing has never not existed by very definition, never had a beginning, will never have an end. That's the, exist, that's the definition of eternality. He was existing. He made the world in six days and rested on the seventh day. And if he wants to make a donkey tonk, then he can. It's her attitude that got me. And I thank you for that. I met a talking donkey today. That's the one that the gospel gets through to. Versus that skeptic, that wise and intelligent that says, there's no way a donkey talks. Sorry, you can have your religion. There's no way a man gets swallowed by a big fish, lives for three days in its belly, and gets vomited up on the beach. No way. No way? Really? Ask any atheist, how'd the world get here? Well, you see, they don't know. Their greatest evangelist is Richard Dawkins. And here's what Dawkins comes up with. Two possibilities. A, aliens seeded our planet for life. Okay, let's assume that's right. Where'd they come from? You're still not back to the crux of the matter. Where and how did it begin? Secondly, he said, if it wasn't aliens, then it was, are you ready for it? Crystals. And they call us idiots? Crystals started everything? DNA, intelligence? No. You believe Genesis 1-1, it's all gravy from there, folks. We know who God is. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And the people that Jesus rejoices in are the ones that read it and say, looky there, a talking donkey. God can do anything. And the ones He hides the truth from are those that say, a talking donkey? I'm through with that. Done. Do you see the difference? So Jesus, therefore, always go to the wrong place. Jesus rejoices in this. I rejoice, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things. You've hidden the gospel from the skeptics, from those that are conceited, from those who will not believe. And you've revealed them for those who are hungry to know the truth. I'm going to turn over briefly to Matthew chapter 18 to the left. Matthew 18. Where Jesus has a child come to him. He does it in Luke as well, but he says something Matthew doesn't say in Luke. Children were, were not thought of as, as thought very highly of. They were the lowest form of life next to animals. They had no rights. They knew nothing. Um, they did not rule their homes as they do today. All the attention in the world was not given to them. They were relegated to the lowest. And Jesus used that example. Matthew 18, 1, he says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called child to himself and set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become dependent upon the Lord of heaven and earth and stop the nonsense of trying to make sense of your own pathetic, nonsensical life. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. A child believes. That's why you need to teach your children today, Jesus is Lord. Bring them to church. Let them see you, find you even, reading the Bible. That they 
No, my dad reads the Bible. My dad's a smart guy. He has three postgraduate degrees, and he thinks the Bible's true. It must be true. You know me well enough, many of you, to know Lance is not going to believe anything that isn't true. I'm not up here to make money. I'm not up here to try to make something true that's not true. I got my own PhD to make certain that I know that what's in this book is actually God's word. And to make certain that the atheistic arguments that are given all over the world today don't make any sense. I had to study them. It turned me into a bit of a skeptic myself. It made me angry, quite frankly, reading their arguments. But I realized they don't know Jack Squat. And they certainly don't know Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, all they know is Jack, Mr. Squat. And that's coming from someone who read their arguments. They don't make good arguments. They don't know something that you don't. I did the research for you. I'm a pastor today to tell you that. Doesn't mean you're going to take my word for it, but at least go on that. God is hiding the truth from those who will not believe. And so as St. Anselm said around 1000, A.D. 1000, said, I believe, I believe in God. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that I might understand. Do you catch that? I'm not trying to understand so that I can believe. I believe so that I might understand. Everything's in the order, folks. A child believes. What child says, Dad, I'm not quite sure why you want me to eat this food. You take that little baby and you just shove it in there. And you sing a song, you know, and the spoon comes in, bring it out. Later on, they start questioning, why do I have to eat these beets? Why do I have to make my bed? And the only thing you really have as the daddy is, because I said so. I said so. And if you're training your children rightly, they listen to you because nobody messes with dad. And they certainly don't mess with mom. Because you have set that authority. You've established it. They see who you are, what you do. There's too many kids out there ruling the roost. They don't have anyone to look at and respect. And when you tell them about Christ, your life has been lived so horribly, why would they believe your words when you say one thing and do another? An infant, a child with childlike faith Jesus is saying, Father, I praise you. You've hidden it from some, and you have revealed it to those who want to believe. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. He doesn't say, yes, Father, this is plan B, because we didn't anticipate that people would be so skeptical. This was God's plan all along. It was well-pleasing in your sight, Jesus says. Verse 22, so Jesus proclaims to his disciples in that context. All things, he says, have been handed over to me by my Father. Which always reminds me of Matthew 28, 18, right before Jesus gives the Great Commission. What does he say? All authority has been given to me. Some authority, a little bit of authority. I'm moving up the ranks. All authority has been given to Christ the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, all things, Jesus says, have been handed over. Past tense, ongoing effects, have been handed over to me by who? By my Father. God the Father, first member of the Trinity, has handed all authority and power over to God the Son. And in their roles, God the Son has all authority. And Jesus says, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son. 
I could say that with my own son. No one knows me like my own son, and no one knows my son like me. But that's far short of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no one knows the Father like I do, and no one knows me like the Father does. And note this, and who the Father, let me read it again, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, note this, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Jesus has the authority to choose who gets to understand who God the Father is. Well, that's interesting. We see the Trinity. There's God the Son. There's the Spirit. Jesus rejoices in the Spirit. There's the Father being prayed to. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except whom the Son decides to reveal Him. So when you do evangelism, and you tell somebody about Jesus, and you tell them about the kingdom of God, and they say, eh, not today. It's not your fault. You might go away thinking, I could have shared that better. And maybe you could have, but it's not your fault. You don't need to be sharp. You don't need to be slick. You just need to share it truthfully, don't you? Some are going to believe and some are not. But that's not your responsibility. Who believes? Who believes? Whose name is written in heaven is not our call. What is our call is to go forth and share the gospel. Amen? And every time we do, there's a show going on behind the scenes. Of that old serpent, the devil, falling like lightning. Bam, bam, bam. That in itself is worth it. But note the sovereignty of the Son of God. It's Jesus. If someone doesn't understand what the gospel is, it's not your fault. Jesus hasn't given them the key to understand it. Hasn't unlocked the box to allow them full insight. As you have gotten, as I have gotten. I didn't get it because I went to school and now I have enough intelligence to get it. My mom and dad taught me about Jesus. They modeled that to me. I started having questions as a teenager. And quite frankly, my dad didn't have all the answers. Didn't have many at all. He was a simple man of simple faith. And I would ask him, Dad, what about this? What about this? He goes, son, we just believe. We just believe. And that's kind of the church that he went up, that he grew up in. It's the church I grew up in. There were no answers. There were just a bunch of questions. Just believe, just believe. Well, I needed to know. I met my wife, and I met my in-laws, and they took me on the next step. And I, I learned from God's Word, from Bible teachers. And the first one I heard was Josh McDowell. And then I heard Charles Ryrie. And I heard Charles Spurgeon. And I heard John MacArthur. And I heard John Piper. I heard these men with a Bible in their hands, preaching verse by verse, the kingdom of God. And I didn't need an education to believe my soul was set on fire. And quite frankly, it's never been put out. That's why I'm here. I can't get enough. I can't say it enough, although I have to end in my hour. Not for you, but for the nursery. That was... So verse 23, turning to the disciples. We don't know if it's the 12 or it's the 12 plus the 70, but disciples here is not specific. Turning to the followers that were with him that day, we might say, he said privately, come in, guys, come on in. Let's, let's bring this in. He's essentially saying, blessed are the eyes which see the things that you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them. Prophets like Isaiah. 
And Isaiah saw a great vision of God in Isaiah chapter 6. They longed to see God. Jeremiah, Daniel. Daniel longed to see the prophecies that God gave him. Daniel was, was left, Lord, what do I do? And God said, shut it down. Just shut it up. It'll, it'll, be un, it'll unfold when the time is near. Daniel didn't see it. And Daniel's a great prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel saw a vision of God in Ezekiel chapter 1. Longed to see. The disciples saw God in the flesh. They saw his miracles. They saw people come back to life. That is a blessing far beyond what those prophets saw. David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah, they wanted to see those kings of Judah and Israel. They wanted to see the workings of God. David speaks about it in the Psalms. They didn't see it. As great as those men were, and Jesus says, guys, I'm telling you, Blessed are the eyes, your eyes, you actually see it. Blessed are your ears, you hear it. They did not see them, and, and they did not hear the things which you hear. They did not hear them. Yes, the disciples were blessed, but they didn't carry around a New Testament. They didn't have, until a little bit later, the Holy Spirit, and they did have the Holy Spirit. But look at what we have. We live in a day where everyone can have a Bible, multiple Bibles, different translations, different languages. On your phone, it can read to you. If you don't want to read it, it'll talk to you. What an amazing day we live in. And people still don't listen to the Bible, read the Bible. We get to put everything together. What's written in the New Testament as it unfolds from Matthew through Revelation, as it connects itself with Genesis through Malachi. Paradise lost in Genesis 1 or Genesis 3 is paradise gained in Revelation 21, 22. Bookends of the Bible, everything in the middle. The sin of man in, in uh, Genesis chapter 3. A Savior born to, to give us redemption who comes back and returns in great glory and brings us with Him who believe in Him. The prophecies we see in the Old Testament, we can go through our New Testament and read a, a history book and see, wow, that was fulfilled down to the T. We're going to Israel tomorrow for two weeks. We're going to go visit sites where Jesus was. We're going to sing in the shepherd's chapel in Jerusalem in a chapel where even the worst of voices sounds beautiful from the acoustics. We're going to walk where Jesus walked. We're going to have a tour guide that knows the Old Testament and knows the Israeli landscape to put it together. This happened here. This happened there. Wow, I was just reading that in the Bible. We have the opportunity to come to church, to join small group Bible studies, to go to Sunday school, to come to church. I was preaching one day, and, and I just added another passage at the end of my text, and Doug Horton came up to me later, and he said, Lance, I was just preaching that to the youth. That was just fits so great, and Doug's just rejoicing. By the way, I'm singing today because Doug is at Revive. That's the only reason I'm singing. It all connects together. It's so beautiful. And I've read the Bible literally more times than I can count. Hundreds of times. And I can't stop reading it. I read the New Testament 12 times a year. The Old Testament twice a year. The Psalms four times a year. And the Proverbs four times a year. And I still can't get enough. And I'm still learning because the power of the Spirit of God in this book is just beyond words. You can't read it enough. Keep reading it. I only say that to tell you that from my own testimony, this fire doesn't go out. 
It doesn't. Now, I get down, no doubt about it. I'm looking forward to Israel, but I loathe airports and airplanes. You got to get past that. So my depression is there. When we get there, we'll be fine. But this, my friends, this is a scorching hot fire. If you're not reading it, you're only cheating yourself. Essentially, Jesus sent the 70 out to preach the Bible. Tell them the Old Testament Messiah is here. Those who believe, I rejoice. And Jesus says, those who don't believe, I rejoice. It was well-pleasing to God. You and I go forth and just preach the gospel. What's the gospel, Lance? Simple. Four points. Four points. It's on every business card in this church on the back of that card. You are a sinner. It's bad news. We are all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. Do we not? Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Bad news. Not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's the bad news. That's the no gospel. If it ended there, there's no gospel. But it gets worse. Because <laughs> the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. We're depraved. We're all sinners. And what do we get for our sin? Death. Johnny, death. And here's where the gospel creeps in in Romans 5, 8. But while we were yet sinners, remember we're all sinners? While we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. So I was a sinner, and I have to die, and while I'm a sinner, Christ died for me? Yep. But that's good news. It gets even better. Because Romans 10, 9, and 10 says this, that if you confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord... Note that. Not Jesus is cool. Not I believe in Jesus. Confess with your tongue, your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is over all. I'm under Him. He is Lord. If we confess with our tongue that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, what class? You shall be saved. So it's not just a confession. Oh, you, you could go around and just say, look, just repeat this montage. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Save, 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 save. No. What you say with your tongue must be believed in the essence of your being. Go preach that. And give Jesus a show to watch Satan fall like lightning over and over. Watch the demons scatter in the name of Jesus. And watch our Lord rejoice over the effort. Let's pray. Lord, send us out of here. Commissioned, prepared with the gospel. May your gospel flow from our mouths, from our lives. And whether people hear it or not, or receive it or not, may we be faithful to do it. We trust you. Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. Impress that upon us. We trust you with the results. You are glorified in all things. We pray. We submit in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. And God bless you as you go. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.